Good morning. Will you turn with me to today's scripture reading, Psalm 8. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is God's holy word. We have been meditating on Psalms the entire summer, and we're going to conclude with this one. After several Psalms of lamenting about enemies and conflict and criticism and injustice and chaos and failure, that word that Steve mentioned earlier, sin, even comes up after many psalms of just lamenting about relentless bad news that the psalmists face in life and in the world, Psalm 8 breaks into praise, doesn't it? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It opens and closes with those words like two bookends. The psalms remind us that while there is much to to lament over, in the world, and in our lives. There's also a lot to be thankful for. There's a lot to praise God and to rejoice about. Now, yeah, there's, there's, there's much about the human experience, about our experience, about your experience uh, to, to make us doubt. You know, we, we look at the world and, and what we see in the world We look at our own lives and the troubles we faced, and it's easy to begin to doubt, to be be driven to doubt. To go further than that, I'll say some of us become pessimistic about life and our place in the world. Some of us even begin to lose hope about who we are, what the point is of life, of existence, what what the point of me is. Who am I and why am I here? The things of this world, the things of this life that Psalms 2 through 7 talk about in a relentless way, it's enough to drive you to hopelessness sometimes. Uh, Maybe you feel that way now. Maybe you remember a time when you felt that way. And if you haven't, trust me, a day's going to come where you'll feel that way. You get discouraged. You lose hope. It was Hamlet's famous words of pessimism. And hopelessness, right, when he said, what a piece of work is a man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form, 
and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how much like an angel. In apprehension, how much like a God. The beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. And yet, to me, what is this quintessence of dust? In the book, The Killer Angels, Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain is remembering when he memorized that as a schoolboy and recited it for his father. And he remembers his father's words when he heard Shakespeare's line that man is like an angel. And he remembered what his dad said. If he's an angel, he's sure a murdering angel. The Bible expresses this paradox about humanity, the paradox between our beauty and our ugliness, between our apparent greatness and our obvious tragedy. There's, um, there's a beautiful truth in Psalm 8. Despite our weakness, we actually are great. Humanity is great. If you're a human being, you are great simply by definition of being a human being. You're uniquely great. There is something unique about your greatness, according to David's song in Psalm 8. And here's the reason why you are unique in your greatness in the universe. It's because a personal creator cares about you personally. And that's why the Psalms, when things seem most bleak, keep coming back to praise and thanksgiving and rejoicing. Okay? Because in prayer and in worship, the Psalms remember, it doesn't matter how bad things may be, God is great. And that's the foundation. That's what keeps you going through the pessimism and the hopelessness and the doubt and the confusion. God is great. Actually, what I hope you're going to see in David's song today is that a majestic God's great love restores you to greatness. That's the foundation of true greatness. That a majestic God offers you his love. Now, David, David sings of God's greatness, doesn't he? David's singing of God's greatness revealed in creation. David looks at nature and comes to the conclusion that there is a great God. And he opens up with, in verse 1, O Lord, God's name, Yahweh, I am, is what he calls him. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. God's majesty, another way of saying it is his might, or his, his nobility, God's majesty radiates onto everything that he's made. When you look at a great work of art, or you listen to a great piece of music, a symphony, or your favorite song on the radio, I think of Piano Man by Billy Joel. That was my favorite song as a teenager. When, you, when I listen to Piano Man, I, I know Piano Man, the song, is not really revealing anything personally about its composer, I really don't know much about Billy Joel as a person by listening to his song. And yet, by listening to his song, I can begin to appreciate his ability, his talent, his musicality. I can begin to appreciate that he is a man who is not only a musician, but through his experience has developed some insight about human nature. When you look at a beautiful sculpture in a city in Europe, 
or Westminster maybe. You may not know much about the person who sculpted it, but you are impressed by that artist's personal qualities because of the beautiful thing that she's made. So the creation, it's like a radiation from the one that created. And David sees this. He says somewhere else in Psalm 19, maybe we'll get to that next summer. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies, uh, the skies proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. In the New Testament, the apostle Paul, many centuries later, uh, speaking to Greeks and Romans, put it this way, because they had not come out of a Jewish background, they had come out of a uh, polytheistic pagan background, and they became Christians. And this is how Paul uh, spoke to uh, the church in Rome. God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that people are without excuse. See, the Bible tells us that humanity cannot plead ignorance over the existence of God when you look at the creation. The Bible says we don't have an excuse to say we're ignorant that a creator exists. You know, it takes just as much faith to look at creation, to look at nature, and to look at Yosemite Valley, and to look at an ant working, and to look at how your vascular system works and how your brain works. It takes just as much faith to believe that that was all the result of random, random chance, as it does to believe that someone created and designed all of it. The secular mindset looks at the universe and creation and says, wow, we're in awe, but we're in doubt. David looks at all of it and says, wow, I'm in awe, and he does something else. He goes into praise. David's response to creation, to nature, to the physical universe is praise. He assumes that somebody created it. So Dave's, David's point really is simply to say, by these bookends, God is great. We have a great creator because, well, look all around you. Look all around you. We have a great God. That's basically what he's saying. Now I know, it's, it's, one, thing, it's one thing to see that God is great. It's another thing to believe that he's good. Right? So there are many great people who are terrible people. God may be great, but how do you know that God is good? Because David's convinced he's good. Because David's praising him. David's not just afraid of God. He's praising God. He's thankful for God. There's some type of admiration and, and, and affection. He's singing a song to God. You, you don't sing songs to people you don't like, do you? But David is singing to God. How does David know that God is not only great, but good? Here's how. David is not only singing about God's greatness seen in creation. David is singing about God's greatness seen in humanity. He goes on to say in verse 3, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers... The moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you would care for him. I am not a scientist. I am not an astronomer. So some of you uh, scientific and mathematical people 
will uh, please forgive me if I mess any of this up. Don't correct me in real time right now. Give me a break. Just let me know after the service is over. But I'm, I'm going to, ch- this, is, this is complicated to me, but it's probably simple to most of you. So I'm told that Prox- Proxima Centauri, okay, the nearest, the nearest star to our own sun. Okay, so our closest neighbor when it comes to stars is still 25 trillion miles away from us. A star that's just a little further away, Alpha Centauri, okay, according to NASA, it would take a NASA space shuttle to get to Alpha Centauri, almost the closest star. It would take about 165,000 years. Just to get to the closest star system, it took NASA's Voyager 1 spacecraft, which was launched in 1977, the year after I was born, It took Voyager 1 36 years, get this, to just get to the edge of our solar system. Our solar system, 36 years going at speeds of about 38,000 miles per hour. 38,000 miles per hour for almost my entire lifetime, and the thing just got to the edge of our own solar system. Now, David, writing thousands of years ago, is not aware of the science behind what he's seeing. But he looks up at night into the vast celestial heavens. And, and he says, in the vastness of all the stars, God remembers me. He goes further than that. He doesn't simply say that a great God in the vast universe remembers human beings. He goes further. He says human beings have a specific purpose. They're not just known, but they're commissioned. They're equipped He goes on to say in verses 5 and 6, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor and have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now I know in today's day and age, you see the word dominion, you start getting scared and nervous because of all the injustice in the world. I get it. But listen, according to the Bible, God, doesn't, God didn't give humanity dominion over nature at the expense of nature. Originally, God did not give humanity dominion to persecute and take advantage of nature, but to take care of it, to love it, to be stewards of it. Go back and read the first few chapters of the Bible, especially Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, because what you will see is God put the man and the woman in the garden to take care of it. That's how the NIV translation says it. We're stewards. We have dominion on earth as God has dominion over all of creation so that we can care for it and rule it justly and lovingly and good and in a righteous way as he rules. So humanity was great and humanity is great because our our creator says so. Our creator has made it so. And when you begin to believe this about humanity and about even yourself, this helps your prayer life. The Psalms are musical prayers, right? Through every, through every type of human and emotion and experience we see in the Psalms, how we can actually respond to our creator in whatever you're dealing with in life. And we see here a way to help us in our prayer life to our creator. Eugene Peterson I mentioned him before, he wrote a great book on the Psalms called Answering God. And he says, prayer is a re-entry into the reality of being created good. 
as the Bible tells us we were created. Prayer is a reentry into that reality that we were created by God and declared by God good. Our lives, Peterson writes, our lives are bracketed by the words, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Peterson said, when I name the name, the great I am, Lord, is the translation for I am. When I name the name, I am connected to, he basically says, when I name the name, now I can be pulled from the mire of subjectivism. When I remember and name God's name in prayer, I'm attached to a rope from which I can be pulled out of subjectivism. My life is now oriented to another who is more than I am, who is other than I am. So you can pray in awe and in praise. Because although you're like a grain of sand on this planet, that is like a grain of sand in the Milky Way, which is like a grain of sand in the vast universe, although all of that is true, you're remembered. You know that the one who created it all and actually exists outside of the expanding universe knows you personally. That's why David says, God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God is great because, well, look at you. That, that's his second point. God is great because look all around us. And now he's saying, God is great because look at yourself. Look at us. We have a great God. Now, you must be thinking or have thought this way. Okay, so maybe humanity is great. Maybe humanity has done great things and is capable of doing great things. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're good things, right? What did the wand maker say to Harry when he picked out his wand? He said there was another wand just like this one. And the person who had that wand went on to do great things. Terrible things, but great things. And if you know humanity, you know humanity is capable of doing terribly great things. Horribly great things. So I think you have to ask the question, if you're not asking this, and if you're not struggling with this question, is humanity good? Humanity may be great, but is humanity good? And let me get even more personal. Are you good? When you look in the mirror... When you look in the mirror and you, you know the truth about yourself, you see the truth about yourself and you start asking yourself, am I lovely? Am I lovely? Do people think I'm lovely? Does God think that I am lovely? Great, fine, but lovely? Am I something that God admires? I know you've asked yourself that question. Because there's so much, uh, there's so many times in our lives where the reason that we're afraid or the reason that we work really hard is because we're not convinced that we're lovely. We're not convinced that anybody thinks anything important about us. And it's very hard to believe. Even if you've been a Christian for a long time, you know it's true. It's very hard to convince yourself that God loves you. That in the grand scheme of things, he actually loves you. 
you really can't answer this question well if you forget two things. You forget these two things and you'll, you'll be confused forever. Eugene Peterson, Eugene Peterson says that in our prayers and in our lives as creatures, um, we forget two things. We forget that we're connected to God and we forget that we've fallen from God. We forget that we're connected to a creator and we forget that we've fallen from him. Look, let's be honest. We live in a secular society. Most Amer- Statistically speaking, most, an overwhelming overwhelmingly large majority of Americans believe in a God of some form. Very few people in our culture are actually atheists. And yet, we live in a secular society. And the gatekeepers of our secular society, the movie makers, the the musicians, the poets, uh, higher education, the gatekeepers uh, have told us that it is actually a destructive thing to tell people that they have fallen from grace. We live in a, in a society now that believes the biblical concept of original sin, the idea that, that humanity has fallen um, out of grace with its creator. Um, the secular world believes that's a destructive idea. The secular world is doing everything it can to make us forget what the Bible says about our state of grace. It was uh, one of my favorite singer-songwriters from my college days, Jewel Kilcher from Alaska. Beautiful songwriter, amazingly talented woman. But she, she says in one of her songs, such an injustice as children, we are told that from God we fell. The world today believes that the concept of humanity's brokenness, as the Bible describes it, is a tragic, poisonous, destructive idea. And that if we continue to believe that, that if we continue to believe that we have fallen out of grace with God in our natural state, we'll never realize our full potential as a species. We'll never realize our full potential as individuals if we simply believe that we're bad. Well, I I don't think it's that simple that we're just bad. There's more to the story than that. Um, and, and look, if, I, I, if, if that's the way you're thinking, or if you struggle with that thought, I, I want to just encourage you to consider um, the fact that we, we keep killing each other. We continue to impre- oppress one another, and we continue to destroy the planet. If we haven't fallen from a previous and and superior state of existence, then how do we explain the fact that that we continue to hurt one another? How do you explain the injustice? How do you explain the rioting? How do you explain the poverty? How do you explain the war? Everything Everything in the world that grieves you right now and everything in your life that grieves you right now, how do you explain all of that away and simply say who we are now is just fine with us. And we've never been in, other, in any other state of grace. I, I want to encourage you to think about that, okay? Uh, even with our amazing hospitals and with our superior universities, humanity is still a mess, are we not? I think the Bible has a high view of humanity. Regardless of the rumors and, and the, um, 
the accusations about what the Bible actually says about human beings. The Bible actually has the highest view of humanity uh, that you could ever read about. And it also has the best explanation for this paradox that we're, that we're seeing with humanity's beauty and humanity's ugliness, with, with our greatness and, and with our tragic state at the same time. The Bible says that our greatness still exists. The Bible doesn't say you're simply bad. The Bible says you're great. But your greatness, it's marred. It's tarnished. It's, it's hazed. It's, it's, it's muffled. It, it's, it's subdued. It's, it's suppressed. Because for eons of history, we have lived like prodigals, like, like prodigal sons and daughters. Uh, again, Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul put it this way, that by unrighteousness, we actually suppress the truth about ourselves. We suppress the truth that we were created by a good God as good people. We also suppress the truth that we fell out of that perfect state. Actually, it was, um, it was Paul who said, Though we knew God, we did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But we became futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened. And then Eugene Peterson wrote, The most persistent manifestation of sin is to obliterate the memory of sin. If you don't believe there's anything wrong with you, friend, that is proof that there very much is. The Bible says, you know, the, the, mad, the madness that you see in the world and the madness that you see or feel in your own life, it's not the result of denying our greatness. It's the result of presuming our greatness. The problem is not that you deny that you're great. It's you presume you're great. Or what do I mean by the difference? Presuming you are great is believing you are great in and of yourself. Presuming you are great is saying, I am great simply because I am. Because I believe in myself. Because I can do anything I want to do if I set my mind to it. I'm a great person simply because I am. As Stuart Smalley said on Saturday Night Live 20 years ago, because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Now that's a joke, but that's how the world thinks. I am great because I say I am great. But I'm telling you, you are being dangerously presumptuous. You are great, friend, because the creator of the universe created you and said, you are great. Because in the vastness of my creation, I have set you apart as special, as unique to me, because unlike the stars and the planets and amoebas and blueberries and goats and lions and even angels, unlike all of them, you are a picture of me. You represent me. You reflect my glory and greatness and goodness on this planet that I've created. That is the source of your greatness. And anything else the Bible says, you're being presumptuous. And that's really, that's really what sin is. Sin is very practical. Sin is saying, I don't need God to be great. I'm simply great. That's the beginning of the problem, the Bible tells us. It's presuming greatness, not denying it. So, being told you're a sinner, okay, that's not the problem. That's what the world will tell us. 
You're not a sinner. Don't ever believe that. If you do, you're a mess. No, you're already. Look, the problem is not being told you're a sinner. As the Bible explains it, that is not inhibiting you from anything. What will inhibit it, what will inhibit you is not hearing the rest of the story. Because being told you're a sinner is only half the story. Jewel Kilcher had a good point. If we're simply told we're bad, we may never become anything else. And that's very perceptive and very insightful. But the Bible doesn't simply say you're bad. <laughs> that's only part of the story. I will tell you this. You will never improve if you don't hear the rest of the story. And the rest of the story is this. The greatness of God, although... Although the greatness of God is only somewhat seen in the creation. Because we look at the creation, we say, God is great, but we don't know a lot about him. All we look, we look at creation and say, wow, what an amazing creator we must have. But, but I wish I knew him more. Although creation is, reveals God's greatness, but not fully. And although you reveal God's greatness, but, but in a twisted, deformed way now, right? The glory of God is in you but it's, it's tainted, it's, it's suppressed, it's muffled, okay? Although all of this is true, God's glory and majesty is revealed perfectly in one of us. That's the rest of the story. The beauty of God, the love of God, the justice of God, the majesty and greatness of God is revealed perfectly, completely in one of us. Have you noticed verse 2? I, I, didn't, I, I skipped over it on purpose. But did you kind of look at it and go, well, that's kind of peculiar. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. I don't know of any military commander that goes out onto the field with a bunch of toddlers uh, riding around on scooters. I've never seen that. That has never been a, an effective victory campaign as far as I can tell throughout history. And yet that's what it says God does. When God meets his enemies, he goes out with the noise of babies and infants. What? Okay, here's what's going on. What David is saying is that God reveals his majesty and defeats his enemies through seemingly weak and insignificant things. That's what David is saying. God reveals his strength and glory and beauty through ironically weak and unexpected things like babies, like infants who are fully dependent and know they are fully dependent and do not assume that they are great in and of themselves. Now, God was so convinced that humanity was worth saving that he became one of us. That's the rest of the story that the culture is leaving out. God believed you were worth saving. He believed you were worth saving. And he became one of you. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in his presence. And he went on to say, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And God was convinced 
that we needed saving. Now, Jesus comes along. This is who I'm talking about. Jesus comes along, and right before Jesus, uh, right before the crucifixion, the execution of Jesus of Nazareth, he entered into the big city, Jerusalem. And uh, people were so excited about this guy. He had just raised a man from the dead, and everybody in Jerusalem was talking about it. Nobody could suppress it. Nobody could hide it. Nobody could say it didn't happen. It apparently happened. And um, he's coming into Jerusalem now, and people are just, the common people are just shouting praises to him. And these children are shouting out the words, Hosanna to the son of David, the same psalm maker. Hosanna to the son of David. And Jesus' foes, he had enemies, by the way. Jesus' contemporary enemies, they were, by the way, the religious leaders of the day. They came up to him and they said, you see, the blind and the lame are praising you for healing them. And these little kids are shouting praises to you. What do you think about that? Isn't that terrible? Stop. Because what they were basically saying was Jesus was God. Jesus is the man. And, and, and Jesus' foes were saying, shut the kids up. Don't let, that's blasphemy. Don't let them say that. You know what Jesus' response was? He said, this is in Matthew chapter 21. He said to them, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? Jesus' response from his enemies was to quote Psalm 8, verse 2. Now, why would he do that? In short, this is why Jesus did it, because what he's saying and what the New Testament is showing us is that Jesus is proof that God is great. Jesus is the proof of God's majesty. Jesus is the proof of God's victory over his enemies, God's victory over the ugliness that grieves you about the world in which you live. Jesus is God's victory over the ugliness that you face and feel as a person. Jesus is the source of humanity's salvation. And in Jesus, humanity will become great again. That's what he's saying. He's saying Psalm 8 is about me. I'm all about, Psalm 8 is me. God has set me apart to do what no other human being has been able since Adam to do. And Jesus did it perfectly. And Jesus would say in another place, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is proof of God's greatness in a way that nature cannot reveal. Jesus is proof of God's greatness in a way that you, friend, in your brokenness cannot reveal. So Jesus took the ugliness of humanity and he brought it onto the cross with him. And the ugliness of humanity was judged when Jesus was executed on a Roman cross. When Jesus rose from the dead, it was proof that God accepted that punishment upon Jesus. Instead of putting all of humanity through it, he put Jesus through it. And Jesus rose from the dead, it's proof that God is making humanity great again. The proof of your coming greatness, the proof of your God-given potential for greatness is the fact that God rose Jesus from the dead and he is remaking humanity all over again. And that's all wrapped up in Jesus interpreting Psalm 8 as being all about himself. So yeah, you're fallen. I'm telling you, it's the best gift I could give you to tell you that you're fallen. You're broken, you're a sinner. The Bible goes as far as to say that I am wicked. 
I'll say it. I am wicked is what what the Bible says, but it's only half the story. The Bible also tells me you can be great as long as you stick close to Jesus. As As long as you identify yourself with Jesus, you can be great. You can be the great that God intended you to be. And I want to end with with, uh, the words of another song. These words were written uh, 400 years before Chris Martin of Coldplay sang some of them. My song is love unknown. My Savior's love to me. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die. Here might I stay and sing. No story so divine. Never was love, dear King, never was grief like thine. This is my friend, in whose sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. A majestic God's great love is what restores us to greatness. So I'm encouraging you today. I'm encouraging you. September is all about beginnings, isn't it? So as you begin again, find your greatness in Him. Don't start another year. Don't start another project finding greatness in yourself and what you think you can accomplish and what people have said about you and what people think about you and what has happened. Find your greatness in Jesus. Let Him be great for you. And that's how you become great. And you will begin to discover that you want to praise your creator like David does in this psalm. You will want to begin to praise praise a majestic God for loving little you in the vast universe. That's the foundation of a new beginning. Find your greatness in Christ. Let's pray. Father, uh, we have heard it said that uh, some, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. We can confess that all three things, all three of those are true of Jesus. He was born the son of a king. He achieved greatness through his obedience and love of you, even to death on a cross and rising from the dead, and, and, and greatness was thrust upon him. Uh, because we failed to carry out your beautiful good purposes for us. But he did not. And so we are going to say that our great greatness begins and ends with Jesus. And as a people and as a church, help us to find our greatness in him. Thank you. Amen.